You could always have a radio beard. <laughs> yes, sorry. I did grow a beard. Look at it, guys. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I've never grown one before, so this is a first. <laughs> so, this week, and for a little while longer, we're going to be joined by Mr. Ben Trengrove. Hello. Uh, as Caleb is... Off making movies. Yeah, he's making a documentary. It's pretty impressive. So, uh, we've we've kindly allowed him to uh, take off the chains and, and run run free. And... Uh, and, and t- so he can go off and do that. And uh, Caleb has been replaced. Yeah, I'd just like to prefix my guest hosting with the fact I woke up at 2.30 in the morning this morning. Oh, and, of course, to get your WWDC ticket. Yes, and I you was successful. to rub that in. Yeah, but I was so excited that I couldn't get back to sleep. So so you're about ready for a nap. Yes. So if, he, if we suddenly start hearing snoring, that's why, yeah? <laughs> yeah that's right. Fair enough. Good. Hopefully it's not too boring in here. So speaking of conferences, you guys are going to one more thing as well. Well, I mean, I'm going to one more thing. Are you guys going to one more thing? I am going I to am one as more well. thing. There you go. Awesome. So all three of us will be at one more thing. We can do a one more thing episode. Oh, a special edition. In, I believe, in fact, that there is an episode due to be recorded on the Friday of one more thing. There, There is. I don't know quite how that'll work, but we'll figure out. Something. I think what will end up happening is uh, maybe on the... Saturday or something, we'll we'll come home and uh, and record that. You don't want to do like a special whispering edition from the crowd, like a live commentary. That would be really hard to. Yeah, probably not a do. good idea. Um, yeah, we we could do it during the uh, sponsor presentation. <laughs> we could, we could. We'll just be, we'll just sit there and just kind of whisper <laughs> while while the the Microsoft guys are trying to you know present. Yeah, Windows as you. Actually, last year they did that during the lunch break, and this year there is no lunch provided, so I don't think anyone's going to go if we all have to go out and get food. Yeah, well, there's that. Hmm. Um, so, I don't know. We, we may not record an episode while we're there. I think we'll probably record it after we get back. We may we may touch on it, but, I mean, it's... Uh, given that we don't really do a lot of news stuff here, we just do kind of... Yeah. bits and information then it may not actually provide a whole lot of help uh unless we get something specific from the conference so indeed we may share some of the some of the insights that we get from the conference as opposed to talking about how great the after party was or something yeah indeed if there is not although speaking of news we could break some news on this week's episode wwdc tickets are on sale hang on no they've sold out <laughs> oh. 20 minutes yeah two minutes two minutes two minutes, two minutes. oh I don't know. Even worse. I honestly don't know how I got on because I had to choose my like iOS team because I belong to three, and the first one has expired, so I couldn't just click through. And then I had to type in my company credit card because it wasn't my default credit card. And I just thought, oh, it's all right. It'll probably be locked to me now that I've got the ticket sitting in my cart. There's mm. a whole pile of people who just pushed pay, and it just said, sorry, we cannot process your transaction. Wow. And that was yeah. it. So they say two minutes, but it was more I, like seconds. I would, I'm really interested to know from a technical level, how they actually manage to have enough app servers processing requests whilst still sharing state between them all in terms of the number of tickets available. Yeah. Because it's pretty easy to to scale if your multiple servers can be, in, you know, to some extent independent of one another um, so that they can all have local caches and things like that. But if you've got a 
one resource that needs to be shared between them all. I don't know. It'd be really interesting to know how did they all. Did you know, happen to notice what was it on the Apple Store that you went to, like store.apple.com? I think so. I was just mashing continue a lot, but I'm pretty sure it was because it, it filled out, you know, my default shipping information and yeah. all the normal Apple Store things. And that's um, a web objects app, and I have a little bit of background in doing web objects stuff. And the architecture for web objects is kind of geared around app servers he- quite heavily caching. Um, their own interactions with the underlying database so that if you interact with one instance of an app server, um, its state will by default be different from the other app servers who are interacting with the same database, which can be interesting. Mm. Um, so they're probably doing, I'm sure, they're Apple, right? They're doing something clever to synchronize that state, but I'd be interested. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they seem to do a lot better with, with this every year than, say, uh, the San Diego Comic Con, which is completely not developer related, but it is in the sense of you know buying conference tickets because every year those go on sale and the the servers just go like crash for those because mm. so many people are like hundreds of thousands of people are trying to access one server at the same time. It's like a DDoS attack yeah. with like I mean, it's a, a legit DDoS. It's a perfect example of where you want cloud computing, right? You know, something where you can scale up the resources ahead of the demand yeah. to meet the temporary increase in demand and then scale them back down. It's interesting, though, that, you know, Apple are much criticized as not having the kind of server-side jobs of, say, Google or Amazon or Microsoft or pretty much anyone else in the business. Um so I don't like they don't have any platform that's visible to anyone outside of Apple for doing, you know, like Amazon run their stuff on a platform that everyone can use, uh, and we all know how how you can use that to scale up and down. Yep. But um, I wonder I wonder what Apple are doing internally. Whether they just, you know, have, have, are they starting to develop more on the server side in terms of a, a platform that can be scaled up and down. Or did they just uh, clutch something together to meet the temporary demand that they knew was coming? Well, they took down developer.apple.com. So it was obviously using resources from that. Yeah. But it felt rock solid. Like, it was refreshing really fast. Like, I thought maybe when you hit refresh around 2.59 in the morning, it would just start to slow down. But it, it seemed everyone to would get, be doing it yeah. at the same time, yeah. yeah. And I turned on the seconds on my clock so that I could count it down, and it didn't actually come up to about... 30 seconds past, so come on, yeah. Apple, pick up your game. <laughs> I was at 30 seconds late. It was at least by my clock, which wow. comes from their servers, so... There you go. So, it is probably... Like, the probably the way that they set it up is similar to the way that the tax office here in Australia works, right? Because um, the tax office every year during, like, their peak time, which is, you know, tax time, you know, July onwards, um, they actually set up... They actually have, uh, they rent servers that mm. come into the building and set up right, and, physical and, and basically like a set up to, you know, to host and to help bear yeah. the load. And then once that kind of peak time is over, they they got they get rid of them and they just scale back down. So yeah. every year they just, you know, they get temporary servers, take them down. Get temporary so servers, Apple would take them surely down. have, like they probably just use some of the iTunes servers they do have a lot of servers for... so you know they probably put things like you know iCloud servers and, and stuff like that behind and to be them. fair like I mean if you look at the scale right so how many developers were trying to get WWDC gets we're probably talking 
tens of thousands compared to how many transactions would there be on the iTunes store? Well, what daily? about iPhone pre-orders when the yeah, new pre-orders? Be That'd be heaps yeah, more yeah. than WWDC. So really, but I mean, this is just particularly focused in a couple of minutes. So anyway, mm. be an interesting, interesting problem to work on. Um, so congratulations on getting your ticket. Thank you. What about you, Jelly? Did you try and get one? I was asleep. Were you intending to be awake? Or you no, just, no. Yeah. I no. One more thing is is enough for me at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I and also, swipe conference if that ever comes back, Jake. Right. So I probably should say something about that. Uh, some of you may know that I'm one of the organisers of Swipe Conference, uh, and people have asked if we're doing something this year. Uh, so far, the answer is we are most likely not having a conference, a two day event like last year. Um, but we may put on something smaller later on in the year. That's the official line. Cool. Um, but generally, on the issue of alternatives to WWDC, I mean, I think I also made the decision myself not to go this year. Um, I love WWDC. I would love to go back one day. Uh, I think I've been to four. Um, but I just, yeah, for me, I didn't want to spend that time traveling this year. Um there are alternatives, you know. There's an alternative of watching the videos online, and this year it's going to be they're going to be releasing them all the same t- during during the conference. Yeah, yeah. which is which so is that, interesting. That makes makes a huge difference for if you if you like if the only reason you would go to WWDC is for for the videos and stuff. Right. I'm not saying that you, you that's the case because so many people like you listen to so many podcasts where they go to WWDC and they're all talking about the events that happen outside of the actual conference, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that content is probably the least <laughs> good reason to attend. Have you guys been before? Yeah, this would be my not. third. Yeah. I have not. It's the labs you're going for. Yeah, exactly. It's it's I guess it's the stuff that um for me the the biggest thing is that it's a, a time that a whole group of people have dedicated to being in the same place and learning about new APIs and discussing development and things like that. So the fact that there are other people who are dedicating that time to the same thing and the fact that for me, if I was to attend, it would mean a week where I wasn't actually I was doing anything other than just learning stuff. So, you know, the content is one thing, like... You can access the video content outside of the conference, but it, it would be really, really rare to actually set aside a full week to sit down and engage with all of that content. But at the conference as well, you've got the labs, you've got other developers who are there. Um, that's the kind of meeting people, getting a chance to sit down with people and discuss problems. It's like having a week-long Cocoa Heads. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, as much as I bitch and moan a little bit about... Um, how Apple responds to bug reports or doesn't respond to bug reports. Uh, I reckon one of the most valuable times I had at WWDC was back when I was doing web objects development and I'd logged a bug. I uh, can't even remember what it was now. But it was a, a known bug in uh, web objects. Um, I'd logged it. It had been marked as a duplicate. Um, didn't hear anything else about it. And I was sitting down at one of the labs in WWDC um, and I had my code where I had run into this bug. Uh, I used a Java uh, decompiler disassembler, JAD, to have a look at, like, decompile. Hang on. Am I admitting to a crime here? I am not a lawyer, so I don't know whether disassembling Java code to have a look at the uh, implementation would be a crime. So let's just have a hypothetical. Imagine that I had 
<laughs> surely it's not. Surely you just can't go and use it. Oh, look, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. Anyway, um, imagine hypothetically, if I had looked at uh, at the implementation, I'd had I could kind of see what the problem was. Uh, I could explain it clearly. Um, and anyway, so I was sitting in a lab at WWDC, uh, and then sat down next to me was one of the web objects engineers working on the framework. Spoke, started talking to him about this bug. He said, okay, well, let's have a look at it. He pulled open his laptop, had a look at Radar, checked out the WebObject source code, jumped to the line uh, in the class that was exhibiting this bug, did the fix there and then on the spot, pushed it, pushed the changes into source control. And then in the very next release of WebObjects, the bug I reported had been fixed. And um, there's nowhere else where you have that access of being able to actually have a conversation with the person who might be able to write the code to fix the bug that you've reported. Um so if you are going to WWDC, and uh, I would encourage you to make the most of it by doing things like uh, if you have encountered issues um, that you know you've reported bugs in, of taking the time to, to isolate them, to do some sample code, to be prepared so that if you do get an opportunity to talk to the person who might be able to fix it, you can sit down and go through it with them. Very valuable. Yep. And for any other first-timers, first-time WWDCers out there, um, there's actually a really good guide. Uh, it is by Jeff Lamarche um, on his blog. We'll put the link in the show notes. He hasn't yet updated it for this year's conference, but each year for the past couple of years, he's done a WWDC first timers guide, and it's got a whole heap of tips and tricks about how to make the most of the conferences if it is the first time you're going. Um, and in addition to our tips about going to labs, um, yeah, he's got a bunch of others. It's well worth reading. Cool. That's our late breaking news. So we have a little bit of follow up. Mm. So uh, last week, not last week, last episode, I always do that. We talked about accessibility, right? Um, and I mentioned that I hadn't done any accessibility work for the open source project that I released. Quite keyboard. I nearly said Quayboard. It's keyboard. It is Quayboard. No, it's not. It's keyboard. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, we got some, uh, we got some feedback from a listener on that. So Simon Harris, see if I can read this, uh, Simon Harris wrote in to tell us about accessibility value, which is another property that you can use. Um, and I actually use this on keyboard. Um, you can use that if you've got, uh, it represents a value that the user can change that it is, that is a different form from what you want the label to read the, uh, so, um, if the value in a field, in say like a text field mm-hmm. or something, is a different is different to what you want actually read out, then you can use accessibility value to provide a different value. If that makes sense, I think so. Can you give me a concrete example? I'm trying to think of one. Um, so, in the case of I mean, I used the way that I used it was with because I use buttons for the keyboard buttons, right? Right. Yes. So, in the case of uh, some of the buttons, um, you can use the the value the the default value is whatever you set as the value to that the key will enter into the field. So, if you have A, it will enter A, and most of the time, uh, it can you know it can it can handle that. When you have an A, it'll say you know, A mm-hmm. quite quite easily. Um, but if you have characters that aren't necessarily uh, just uh, like they can't be pronounced, mm-hmm. um, 
it will say something like unpronounceable value or it will just be blank. Right. Uh, it can handle some. So, if you have like a, a forward slash T, which is a ta- like a tab, yep. then it will say tab. Right. But some things like, you know, if you've got like a, a downward arrow or a- I really want to know what it says if you've got a pile of poo. I don't- No, I never tried that. We can find out the, pretty the emoticon. easily. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. Do you want to do it? I don't know. Voiceover on. Who makes sense? It's very descriptive. Works. Yeah, it is. It is a smiling pile of poo. So, right. sorry about that sidetrack there. Smiling may pile not of poo. include that in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Uh, yeah. So, but basically, if you've got a, a character like a, a, a character that's not pronounceable, you can change that to be something that is pronounceable by actually giving it a value that yeah, cool. that it use, uses a. It's kind of like I guess uh, the like the pronunciation guide that you can put in contacts in iOS. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So you can you can give a pronunciation guide for for names so it mm-hmm. knows how to pronounce them correctly and it's kind mm. of like that I guess except a lot more freeform so you could put anything in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. So he also had like he he suggested some stuff to do with the uh, to do with the bit masks. I'll uh, I'll post some of that stuff on on the Twitter account and stuff over the over the next uh, couple of days so that people can uh, catch up on that as well. Fantastic. Rather than reading it all out. So thanks uh, thanks Simon for getting in touch. That's really helpful. It helped me. It helped me a lot. Um, I got some other feedback as well. So I think it was last episode that we also talked about Xcode plugins. Yes, mm-hmm. we did. Right. So since then, uh, I've become aware of a um, package manager for Xcode. It just Alcatraz. came out. Yeah, yeah. it just came out. Okay, good. So it did come out yeah. after our last uh, episode. Yep. Uh, which lets you discover and install plugins for Xcode. Yeah. It looks it's pretty cool. It's really handy. Looks like it. Uh, so it's something that you in. It's a plugin, ironically, that you install into Xcode. Uh, and it provides a menu option. Like under the like under the uh, organizer option in the top menu uh, for for yeah you can all, you can install plugins color schemes and templates right and so plugins um, change the functionality of Xcode things like the uh, image named plugin we talked about right which I've started using is really useful yeah it's good although it doesn't add the it, it doesn't have an option to add the uh, the extension I think it does actually have that option I it think it's it? configurable you okay. may have to I may have to look that look yeah at that. you just have to set a um, user defaults value so you can use terminal or whatever to set the oh, okay so okay right yep. defaults value I'll look into that and then it will add the extension right because um, I use the extensions. Yeah, I think I, because when I started doing progressions, I was using iOS four or three or something, and it was like you had to use ex- the extensions. Yeah, I don't actually remember why I use them or why I don't, but I was using them until I started using this plugin, and now I'm not because it doesn't. And uh, yeah, probably should think more deeply about that decision. But yeah, and so uh, templates are um, when you do file new yeah, new so project, can, yep. the kind of text that you get as part of that. Yep. Um, so one of the options that they have for that is AF networking, right? So you can download a, you can you can install that, and it has a a, a template like a new project template that you, that implements AF networking right from the get go. So you don't have to go through and set all that up. 
which is useful. Yeah, that actually is kind of useful. I personally, I kind of feel like templates and code snippet libraries and things like that are, are the least useful form of code reuse because really, like, saves you from typing the same thing all over over and over again. But yep. I'd kind of rather um, get that reuse. I don't know in other ways, right? So um, rather than having like a little library of code snippets that I commonly refer to, I'd rather those code snippets resided in a library or framework that I linked against and could subclass or could access. Um, but in this case of just setting up a project and with references to the other third-party libraries you want to use, um, CocoaPods makes it pretty straightforward. But it's still... I just started a new project through the last couple of days. And, yeah, just the process of creating the new project, linking against the couple of libraries I want to use, even using CocoaPods, um, getting... like creating an ad hoc build... Is it called build target scheme? It's a scheme. scheme. A scheme. Uh, then making sure I forgot. I don't know if you've run into this. This is a gotcha with CocoaPods that um, because you've got a CocoaPods target and your app target, if you create a new build scheme in your apps target, you've got to have one with the same name in the CocoaPods target. Otherwise, when you try and do an archive uh, using that scheme, um, it'll fail because there's no... Scheme of the same name. Did not know that. Maybe it was only because I had a uh, custom properties file as well. Anyway, ran into it. It was still a fair bit of messing around just to create. Whereas uh, if so, if there are templates that just mean that the process of getting going on a new app is as simple as file new project. Yeah, especially especially if you can have it set up CocoaPods for you. Um, if if you use CocoaPods, which I am using pretty much exclusively now. Given that we've got a new member on the couch today, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on? Do you have we converted you to CocoaPods? I had heard about it before I heard it on here, um, and I really like it for AF networking and those sort of libraries. Um, but I tried it for Cocos 2D, which is what I work in a lot, writing kids apps, and it didn't build. So okay, that's not good at all. No, it wasn't that great, and I also set up my Cocos 2D projects a little differently because actually they've recently fixed this but previously they had a project and it had all the tests and everything and so you get in your scheme bar or whatever it's called up the top when you go and change the target mm-hmm. there's about 50 tests in there as well right oh, right and i don't like that so i yeah. set it up a bit differently to avoid that okay so i use it for everything except cocos 2d currently I, th- I think it's interesting like a common thing that if the libraries you're using aren't particularly well integrated with CocoaPods. So I think it depends on the pod spec that they've written and which how up-to-date it's kept. So another one I use is Hockey, which we've talked about. Hockey's pod spec points to a version of their um, libraries that isn't their latest version and generates compiler warnings. It's re- it yeah. really drives me nuts that I start a new project. I don't like warnings. I hate I warnings. 15 of them. I hate warnings yeah. so and, much. And I hate having to configure the compiler to ignore warnings because I want the compiler to warn me about issues. And as soon as you've got warnings showing up that you expect to see, you know, you start not paying attention to other warnings or if you then tell it to ignore warnings in certain projects, yeah. Yeah. So apparently Hockey have fixed that in the latest development version of their libraries, but they don't have a pod spec for it. no pod spec for it. Well, you could write a pod spec and submit it. I I just end up configuring... My project, the pod target in my project has ignore 
compiler warnings turned on, which okay. is painful. But yeah. I kind of figure I can't fix them. So I- yeah, so I mean, one of the ways that you could get around that is to is to have your own uh, pod spec and right, yeah. point to that rather than pointing to the to the one in in the actual. And maybe it's maybe it's worth doing. I keep thinking they'll fix it surely at some point. But surely, but I think that I, I have a feeling that hot that the hockey pod specs aren't actually done by hockey. They're oh, right. done by somebody else. Like because anybody can submit a pod submit spec them. for anything, right? So you could fix the Coco Studio one as well. I could. I'm kind of burnt now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so. Completely yeah. sidetracked there. The follow-up completely was... Completely uh, sidetracked there. There's now an even easier way to discover and install Xcode plugins. Yep. So, uh, uh, we'll, we'll throw a link to that into the show notes. I've uh, I've uh, downloaded it and tried it, and it looks really good. And I haven't really looked at a whole lot of the uh, the plugins. I wonder how much... That are available. If any, this will all change after WWDC. Will Apple announce Xcode 5? Xcode 4 point something or other? Will what they- are we up to now? Like 4.1? Nah, I think we're 4.2. 4.6.2? Yeah, I think it's like 4.6 or something. I feel so where you get it. I don't even know where you get the 4.1 I just pay attention to the 4, right? Yeah, so I think they're like up to 4.6. So I think there's probably, there's possibly a little while before they they go to to 5. But they do tend to announce major changes at WWDC. Yeah. So there might be a beta of the next version. or And I wonder whether they'll start to explicitly support plugins a bit better, like document it, or whether they'll make breaking changes that'll mean none of these will work anymore who knows exactly who knows and we're not here to speculate so we're just going to move on okay okay (laughs) just just i'm just going to bluntly say that yes so uh so this week we're going to talk a little bit about debugging and using instruments Mm -hmm. so i don't do a lot of that because I come from like I come from a web background, right? Um, and there are no good tools for profiling. Not really. Full, like I do a lot stack. of I do a lot of like PHP development. Yeah, and there's really nothing good f- for debugging that except for the error log. Uh, and I do obviously do as part of that. I also do like JavaScript and and HTML, and you can use like the browser tools for that. But there's no like there's not any sort of like runtime tools to get in and mm. find out where like bugs are and and memory leaks and stuff like that are so i don't have that excuse at all i don't use instruments much myself either although i should i think i don't know like maybe it's just an assumption that my code's perfect no you but should it's m- it's great so my, my development process at the moment is like uh implement something the way i think makes sense and if i experience performance problems then spend time investigating it but i haven't really got the use of instruments kind of as part of my standard workflow of just but yeah i think i, I would like to i'd like to know more about it yeah i want to know how do you use instruments so i just want to say before we even get to instruments the first step if you've got a really weird bug is to run the analyzer right yep yeah i do that so that i do I that do. as a matter yeah. of course yeah. i run the analyzer we, all the time we, one of our job interview challenges that shiny things is we have a dummy project that's just got a few horrible things in it and one of them is set up that it, the analyzer will just tell you straight away, fix this. Mm. And it's amazing how many people never run the analyzer, mm. even though we tell them this is a bad project, you have to fix it. And it's amazing how good the analyzer is getting. Oh, it's, it, it's ridiculous. Like yeah. it, can, it can tell you about memory leaks. It can tell you about un, well, unused variables. You don't even need to run the analyzer. It's a compiler warning now. But yeah, it's amazing how much the analyzer can sort of identify problems before you even experience them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I use the analyzer all the time. I find that really useful, and I wish there was something like that for for uh, for web code. 
Mm. So my web backend history, as I keep talking about web objects, Java, there was Java had a good static analysis tool called FindBugs. Okay. And there's good profilers called um, JProfile. Um, yeah. So there's kind of, it was a good backend technology to use in some respects because it had those sorts of tools available. Yep. But it was still a challenge profiling, you know, the, the full stack of client makes a request via a web browser to the server, server code runs, which you can profile with JProfiler. Then it comes back and some client code runs, which you can like to kind of try and follow that whole thing back and forth. Um, a lot of fiddling around, whereas we're a bit spoiled on the Mac and iOS because instruments makes it easy, it looks. I've certainly seen all of the uh, WWDC videos. Yeah, I always go to the instruments ones. Yeah. So the one that I think works best in any workflow, sort of like towards the end of your project when you're in the testing phase, is something called heap shot analysis. Have you guys heard of that? I have. So what heap shot analysis is, is you... Say like you have your app and it has a main menu and then from the main menu it does some sort of task. It could be anything. When you get back to the main menu, you expect it to sort of have the same memory footprint as it did before the start. Right, yeah. And if it doesn't, you're probably leaking something or maybe not leaking something, but it's just something is still retaining something that it shouldn't. Yeah, and so this is the class of bug that I think personally instruments has been of most use for, which is where the static... Analyzer would tell you about an actual leak, right, where you've failed to release an object that's not being used anymore. But this is kind of over-allocation yeah. where um, there are still references to the object. So it shouldn't, by kind of literal definition, it shouldn't have been released because there's still things retaining it. Um, but those things needn't be retaining it because each time you enter that, if you and the typical example is that the memory footprint will get getting bigger and bigger each time. Like if you go into that section and then back to your main menu, then into that section and back to your main menu, then yeah, into that right. section and back to your main menu. If your memory footprint keeps getting bigger and bigger each time, then there's over allocations happening. Hmm. So it could, it could be a lot of things, but at least with heap shot analysis, it sort of gives you an idea of what it is. So it's in the allocations tool in instruments, mm-hmm. and there's a little. I guess I'll put a link to some to a tutorial because it's quite a visual thing. Uh, but there's a button on the side that I think it says mark heap or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you push that where you want to start. So say your main menu and it captures a thing. And then you go and do your task and you come back. And when you're at the same point, you push the button again. And it you have to do it a few times because the first few times you might, I don't know, initialize a case or something like that. So normally by the third one, you, it should start going just straight to zero. It shows you how much memory is allocated between the, the snapshots. Right, uh, yeah. And it should drop to zero as the pool is released and stuff. Might not be straight away. And so I normally do it about six times and about three, four, and five all sit on zero if you've got it right. Yeah. But the cool thing is if it doesn't say zero, you can open it up and it'll say you've got a, I don't know, Ben's object still sitting around. And then if you've got it set to track, retain, and release, you can actually click it and it will show you what retained it and what released it. It doesn't actually show you what's still retaining it because it only just tracks retain calls and release calls. Right. But yeah. you can scroll down the list and go retain, 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 and only two releases and go, oh, my touch dispatcher never released it or yeah. something like that. So I think that's the bit that I've struggled with is to get the, like I've been able to run instruments and have it show me my memory footprint changing, um, but then getting it back to the line of code in my app that's actually created those objects or failed to release them. Yeah. You is there something the right- special you got to do to like, there Change is. it from kind of memory addresses back to actual proper lines of code. Yeah, there's a box on the left which is just to show Objective C objects. So that's your first step. 
because otherwise you'll get void star pointers and a whole pile of stuff that's probably not very easy to read. Yep. Uh, and then on the right, you got to open that right sidebar. And when you click the object, it will show you a stack trace from that object. And yep. you can click the part that is your code, not the in-depth stuff. And that will show you the actual line that object was made on. Ah, okay, cool. I think someone else once showed me a technique where you could um, you could aggregate up the allocations of things. So you could, um, if objects were being allocated by system code, you could assign, like, attribute that to the bit of your code that result that caused that thing to be allocated. Does that make sense? I think so. But I, I've never been able to find it. This is, uh, this I don't is, know. My problem is taking it from those examples I see at WWDC videos where it looks really, really useful to then when I run it and I just see a whole heap of memory addresses that don't make any sense to me. Yeah, you got to tick that box on the left. Right. That's the big step to make it readable. Or else, yeah, it just talks and see. And you can't understand what's yours and what's system stuff. Mm. Unless you're a C. Unless you're a genius. Wizard. Yeah. Which I'm sure there's plenty of them. I was actually watching the WWDC uh, Instruments video earlier today in preparation for our discussion, and they were talking about how you can even use it to analyze a custom assembler code. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Useful for people who, you know, dream assembler. Not me. I'm not not an assembler guy. I'm... Yeah, once I get into that sort of area, I get really lost. Yeah. I'm lost well before then. <laughs> yeah, I probably am lost before then too. So the other one I like as well is the time profiler. And that's just if you're really writing something performance heavy, then you can use that. And so it'll show you the actual line that's taking up. It gives you a percentage of this line is taking 86% of your processing time. Um, okay. And so we use that at work. Not for something we ever shipped, but we just had a fun programming day and we were all trying to write letterpress solvers. All right, yeah. And it was sort of became a competition to see whose could do it. The fastest. The first one we all put out, it took about a minute to tell you all the words. And we're like, oh, that's terrible. And so, yeah, I used the time profiler and find out it was found out it was NS string taking all my time, constantly making new strings. And that was cool. And then I wrote my own C string library just to try and win. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Did you win? I did. There you go. And it was I was, worth it then. It was I was worth still it. amazed when the ones came out on the App Store and theirs could do it on your phone in probably less than a second. And I'd spent all this time writing C code and I was still like 10 seconds or something. Yeah. I just don't I don't get what they did. I'd love for someone to tell me, please. There you go. But So that seems like a little bit um, of an arcane use of the profiler. And I'm kind of a bit the same, which is like, I don't know that I've ever really run into areas in iOS apps that are running so slowly that I need to profile like the time where is the time being spent um it's more like I guess like jittery user interface things like sometimes the scrolling scrolling. seems and generally rather than profiling that I just immediately start to think well how can I make it more asynchronous so that I'm not doing stuff on the main thread um but in terms of the profiling something that was mentioned in this WWDC video is that uh it may actually not have a perceptible impact on um, your app. Like your app might be fast enough that users don't notice that it's taking a long time to process things. But if you're doing inefficient code, like if you are spending longer uh, in a tight loop, for example, than you actually need to be, um, it can have an impact on the device's battery life. Mm. So kind of Ah, Apple were encouraging people to look at the profile of the app, even if it's not, like just as a matter of course, sort of saying rather than just looking at optimizing when you notice it being slow, optimize all the time 
just as a matter of course to try and make it as efficient as possible so battery life is better and i suppose that that's i don't know it's a really good idea but as the developer of an uh, you know even just one or two apps on someone's device how much control do you really have over the battery life of that whole device compared to everything else that they're running well it depends on how often they run the app really and it dep- it especially depends on how often like your particular app is is going to be yeah. running i suppose something like status board for example i can see i can see uh, your uh, status board over there can we see how many people are watching our listening to us our podcast on your status board you can look you can. at look at there's oh my god there's it's like dozens. off the chart I can't actually read the axis, but it's a line. It's going in a direction. Uh, most recent episode, 244. Hello. Thousand. 244,000. Thousand. I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Hello to all of you. Um, right. So, yeah, status board, apps like that, which are designed to run constantly, are obviously bigger issue than uh, if your app is only going to run for 10 seconds before someone quits it again. My understanding is that status board does have a memory issue, so perhaps they could... Uh, they could- the guys at Panic could uh, use instruments to uh, to find that, mm. because uh, yeah, it it crashes every now and then. I find the performance tuning as well as sort of a fun break. Yeah, if you're getting bored of typing out whatever you're working on, sometimes just playing around with the performance, going, "Oh, how can I make this better?" It's a yeah, nice so sidetrack. You can sort of gamify your own development yeah. experience and sort of say, you know, how can I make this faster? How can I make it more efficient? One of the things that um, I've now marked something I want to follow up on after watching this video again, was um, there's a view where you can see how many cores are being used or how many processes. Yeah. Um, and I really like that idea of, of trying to achieve greater parallelism by like looking at if, you know, if the bulk of my code is only ever running on one core, um, maybe there are things I can do. I'm, I'm one, one of the things I could do for greater parallelism in the back of my mind is to use blocks more, not just for async, network calls but for things like uh modifying elements in a list instead of doing a for each using the block based version where yeah. you create a block to process each item on a list and then you can kind of do them all in parallel yeah um let's enumerate objects with block yeah and i think that there are some libraries that make creating that um and using it simpler do you know of them no, Either of not you? off the top of my head, no. Right, okay. We should look it up. Maybe follow up for next time. Maybe. Uh, talk about blocks. But, yeah. Uh, so, those are those the main ways you use instruments? Anything else? Pretty much. You can also find retain cycles, which is pretty handy in Arc. Mm. A lot of the time comes from having a strong self in your block. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it'll actually draw out the cycle if you find it well enough, which is really cool. So, it just looks pretty. Mm. And then it's pretty easy to spot once it draws it for you, and you just can just go change something to weak most of the time. Nice. Yeah. I guess I'll find articles and put them in the show notes because all this stuff's very step-by-step visual. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Cool. Um, yeah. So further on the topic of debugging, I don't have, haven't used instruments as much as I would like, uh, but a tool I do use to do debugging a great deal is uh, Charles Debugging Proxy. Have you guys heard of that one? Used I've that heard one? of that. I haven't really used it. So Charles is, uh, I think, great for debugging client-server interactions is what it's really intended for. Mm-hmm. So if you're developing an app that needs to talk to something on the internet, which I think these days is pretty much everything, right? To, you know, 
Even games? Do yeah, they well, we to make network calls. Yeah, it's we do. It's rare to find a, find something that's not making calls to, yeah. the, to the network. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so Charles is basically a, a debugging proxy, as its name says. Uh, the idea is that it sits in between uh, your device and the network services it's talking to. Instead of making a request directly to the network services, they go via Charles. And then it allows you to watch the traffic going back and forth um, and, interestingly, also modify the traffic going back and forth. Um, so, you know, it can be really handy for things like if you're interacting with an API, um, you can mock out the server-side code so you can run your client against the actual API with uh, through Charles. And then Charles will kind of record. It's a bit like instruments in that you start it up and then run the app and it records the kind of whole session. Um, and then you can save that Charles session to analyze later. Um, and one of the things you can do once you've got a child session is to go to a, an individual network call. So say you made a GET request to a particular service endpoint, you can have a look at the data that came back, whether it's JSON, XML, look at all the values. Um, and then you can just right-click on that line in Charles and say save it, uh, save that response somewhere to disk. And then you can um, map uh, an, a request to a local file. So you can then say in the future, whenever I request this service endpoint, instead of actually hitting the service, just return the data that I've saved uh, to disk. So it means that you can um, continue to work on the client side app without actually having to hit the service. So if the service changing or evolving over time, or if you're developing to a kind of spec that there will be a service at some point that'll have responses that look like this, you can kind of mock it all out external to your app so you don't have to kind of have fake code within your app mocking the service responses um, your app can actually run as if it's interacting with the service um, but you can get back um, the canned responses uh, also allows you to more easily fake situations that could cause problems to your app so a common one i've run into before is where i'm writing some network code that um, respect expects XML or JSON back and people run it when they're on a Wi-Fi network that's behind one of those um you know when you, you you're yeah. out and about like and it's an free, airport or like something. an airport yeah, and, and they, every response is actually a H a web page telling you to click this button to agree to the terms and conditions. And so the networking code actually gets a response back that appears to have come from the service endpoint, but really it's HTML containing a login page instead of the actual thing. Um and if you're not handling that properly your app will do weird stuff. Um, but sometimes recreating that can be difficult. Uh, so, again, you could use Charles to rewrite the response. So get it to kind of capture the network traffic and um, rewrite the response. So you send back HTML where the, it should be JSON and things like that. Um, it's also just handy for seeing the content of requests and responses. So, you know, is the app actually sending the data you expect it to be sending and getting back what you'd expect it to get back? Uh, all sorts of things like that. Just trying to think. Um, another handy feature it has uh, is for simulating network conditions. So especially with mobile apps, um, people are going to be running your app uh, on a variety of different network conditions, like fast networks, slow ones, and network conditions that will change frequently during the running of the app. So as an example, um, one of the bugs we ran into with iView shortly after release of the iPhone version uh, was that people were reporting that they would be part of the way through watching an episode of something and suddenly it would start again from the beginning. 
which yep. would be kind of annoying. Like you're watching an hour-long show and you get 40 minutes in and it boots you back to the beginning again and then you watch it through again. I had that bug once. I think it was something to do with HTTP live streaming. It was indeed. Yeah. So HTTP live streaming is a way of delivering video. Um, anyway, I probably don't have time to go into the exact details of the bug here, but the process of diagnosing it, I uh, made use of Charles. So to recreate that situation, basically the bug occurred when your network connectivity changed during playback. So if you started watching a video and you had a high-speed connection and then part of the way through your connectivity degraded so that it caused the uh, video player to drop down to a lower bitrate version uh, and then subsequently you went back up, um, it would that's where the, the bug was, that it would boot back to the beginning. So recreating that... Um, was able to actually use Charles to inspect the traffic going back and forth. And then Charles has a menu option where you can tell it to um, simulate a network speed. And you can customize that to your heart's content. It's got some canned ones, but you can just put in a particular bit rate you want it to simulate. And so you could then force your app to do the behavior that it would do if it encountered that in the wild. You could then see how the requests change. Um, and yeah, so that process was able to help kind of identify exactly what the bug was and then fix it. So that sounds like that sounds that particular feature sounds kind of like the network link conditioner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's something that you can find as well on your devices now. It's I in think. the developer menu. Yeah, it's in the developer menu. You got to have your phone in development mode. So the thing, the benefit of using um, Charles's version of the network link conditioner as opposed to your devices is that it's coupled with inspecting the traffic that goes back and forth. Right. So um, yeah, and I also find it found it easier to make those changes kind of on the fly. So network link condition is good for setting a particular network condition and then running your app under that condition. Mm -hmm. But if you want to change the conditions of the network during the running of your app, I found it easier to be using something not on the device right? to be kind of changed. So the device's network traffic was all going through Charles and then I could use Charles to kind of change the network conditions on the fly and then see how those changes were exhibited in the app. Yeah. Yeah, because it'd be pretty hard to switch modes because you'd have to exit the app, go to settings, mm. and then come back. Mm. You could also use network link conditioner on your Mac and use, route your, route your um, traffic, traffic like share your Mac's internet connection with your device so that it's you could still change it there. Yep. But, um, yeah. Which so, is how it used to be done until, until it came out. I think this came device. in like 6 or something yeah. on the device. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to have a look at Charles. Um, it's great. It's also handy for uh, looking at HTTPS communications between clients and servers. Um, you can get Charles to issue a self-signed certificate, configure your device to accept Charles' self-signed certificate, and then you'll be able to see the traffic uh, in some cases, depending on what's been done on the server side, just to make sure that um, it's an authentic client talking to it and not a proxy. But um, yeah, so I think things like, for example, the uh, the path uh, controversy where they were uploading the contents of your address book, um, I think that was identified using a network proxy that people um, yeah. use. You can just run it and have a look at all the traffic that's going back and forth, um, which can be really interesting. That's how all the Siri hacks work as well. They put a thing in the way and pretend to be the Siri server. So, Yep. There are some pretty crazy Siri hacks out there. Indeed. So, uh, any other debug techniques, tools you guys use? 
I use the I use NS log a lot. Do you have a way to turn it off in release? Um, well, yes, because Crashlytics comes with that, I think. Oh right, so yeah, Crashlytics they Ash have, defines NS log. Right? Yeah, they have yeah. they have a built in way of of doing of doing that. So. If you use NSLog a lot, I would encourage you. Did you come to Nathan DeVries' session on debugging at Swipe Conference? I didn't go to Swipe Conference. Oh, you're missing out. So we'll have to put a link to that video in the show notes because I think it's the one of the ones we've released on the web. Um, it was a fantastic session. He covered Charles, so you'll get to hear yeah. Nathan talk about all of the things that I just mentioned and probably a lot more. Um, but he also talks about the fact that you can configure your Xcode breakpoints to log. So you actually use the okay. debugger, LLDB, to do your logging yep. as opposed to putting in NS log statements because then you can uh, – and the advantages of this are manifold. You don't have to have – you don't need to modify your code when you want to change the degree of logging you want to see, right? So mm-hmm. there are some times when you want to see what's happening and other times you don't need to. So you don't need to change your code, which is nice. Um, you can share breakpoints, so you can actually – Xcode stores all the breakpoint settings in a particular file, and you can choose whether or not you want to commit that to source control. So if you're working in a large team, you could share your breakpoint settings with your team, or you could choose to keep them out of the public repository. Um, And you can also have conditional breakpoints. So you can configure a breakpoint to conditionally log something. So if you're in a loop and uh, something weird's happening on the 36th item, in the loop, instead of having to log out all of them, you can have a breakpoint that's configured. Um, so if there. a particular condition yeah. is true, yeah. then it will do some logging. Okay. The only downside with this is uh, the syntax for printing stuff using LLDB. It's like the equivalent of PO where you print an object. Yeah. Um, I find it so hard to figure out. Like uh, NSLog, I understand strings. I understand how to write Objective-C to construct you know, strings with all of the information in that, that I want, whereas the debugger commands to print like the data structure that I want to actually look at. Yeah. I really struggle with. So I always intend to use this that way of um, logging, but invariably I end up putting in NS logs anyway because yeah. I can't figure out the format to tell the debugger to print out like I don't know the x dimension in my rex origin field, you know, like that would just be p rather than po. Ah, oh, well see there's my problem. Mm. But can you just use p or po with a Breakpoint, or is there actually? I yeah, no, you can. In okay. the breakpoint, it's just the LLDB syntax. So, is there a good LLDB syntax cheat sheet somewhere? I'm not sure. I'm sure there is. P is for printing primitive objects, right? And PO, PO is, is for, for printing, printing complex objects. Yep, that's right. If you use P it. on an Objective C object, you'll get its memory address because that's all it really is. It's yep. a pointer. Yeah. There's another disadvantage to using breakpoint logging. And that was a bug, which I think might, they might have fixed because the update notes said performance enhancements when debugging. Um, but they were excessively slow when testing right. on a device yep. to the point of being unusable. Okay. Like you were waiting 30 seconds to get a, a log. And if you put that in a loop, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So I had to, because I used to use them and then yeah. they stopped being slow. usable. Yeah. Okay. I haven't tried again since I updated. We should find out. Yeah. I wasn't using them on device. I was using them, yeah, simulator. Hmm. Well, so yeah. So I mean, I, I use NSLog because I mean that's where that's what I come from. See, 
using JavaScript, like coding JavaScript is basically the only thing you can do is log stuff. Is log stuff or yeah. like ha- or set an alert to come up. Yeah. And and to be honest, like logging stuff, I reckon is one of the most common ways of debugging stuff. Yeah. Like something oh, weird. It's the not, fallback. Yeah. Something weird. You try going all your on. fancy techniques, and when they fail, you just stick logs everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, a lot of them come out. Like, I, I take most of the logs out uh, yeah. because I don't need them, um, obviously, when when testing on a device or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, so very sometimes I'll leave them in. Mm. Um, and it's important then, you know, to, to make sure that you are having... You've got some method for not having them go through to release because it can cause devices to run a lot slower than what you want them to yeah yeah and as we have talked about in excess on today's episode not really excess we've talked about plentifully on today's episode making things run fast is good yeah fast fast efficient fast is good yeah so i think that's pretty much it for today all right that's all i got so uh Guys, thanks for for joining us. If you would like to read any of the show notes that we have put together for the episode, uh, you can do that. You can do that. Today is the seventh episode, so you can go to mobilecouch.co forward slash seven. You can also get in contact with us and tell us about your debugging stories, uh, how you use instruments. You can tell me that I debug in a very terrible way and I should change. Uh, sorry uh, <laughs> or that any of us do really we'd love to hit you know mobile couch is all about getting your you guys feedback and and uh and and helping you guys out as well so we'd love it if you would uh get in touch with us you can do that by jumping onto the website as well mobilecouch.co forward slash contact uh you can also talk to us on twitter jake is j mcmullen that's j m a c m u l l i n Ben is Ben Trengrove, B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E. And I am at Jelly Bean Soup. I don't don't need to spell that. So, until next time, guys, we have had a great time talking to you today. Uh, We'll see you next episode. Bye.